Hi, I'm Ryan, the book hoarding rules guy. I'm Ben, the perils of the warp player. I'm Helen, the magma tears storyteller. And I'm Jared, the lonely game master. And together, we are the starting equipment podcast. Here's the thing. There are so many games in this world and so little time. So many. We've all been there. There are thousands of RPG games released in hardback every year and thousands upon thousands more released as digital exclusives from small presses and independent creators. You can find them on itch.io if you're looking. You can find them on crowdfunding platforms. You can find them on game-specific sales platforms like DriveThruRPG, which is my personal favorite, and Indie Press Revolution. So little time. And everybody's favorite. If you're lucky enough to have one, you can find them at your friendly local game store. Always support your local friendly game store. But here's the problem. There are only 24 hours in a day. Thanks to capitalism, we have to spend most of those hours working. Then you have sleep, chores, trying to match your schedule to your gaming friend's schedules, trying to convince them to play a new game with you, especially if it involves buying new stuff or a niche genre and deciding who will run the game. If you suggest a new game... I'm here to tell you, it's probably going to be you running it. And I'm here to tell you, frequently your friends will be like, let's start a new game. But no one will suggest which game because they're hoping you will, and then you'll run it. If you're a voracious reader, then I guarantee you'll stumble across games that you want to play, but you already know the math of who, where, and when, and it just isn't going to work out short of a planetary alignment. That may be because scheduling, sure, but it may also be down to taste in games or genres, either yours or your gaming groups. For instance, we talked about it before, a common veil in this group is flirting and sex, so I generally just keep all romance off the table when I play with these guys. But I have other friends for whom that's more their jam. By that same token, you might have a group who's very interested in high politics, high intrigue, high interpersonal drama, and is willing to engage in PvP. Cough, cough, us. Cough, cough. Um. <laughs> Perhaps you play Vampire the Masquerade with that group, or even the Amber Diceless RPG. When you tell them about Monster Care Squad by Sandy Pug Games, their eyes glaze over. I don't know who doesn't want to travel a fantasy countryside as an elite team of veterinarians curing monsters of their ills and bringing balance back to the ecosystem, but this is a hypothetical, because truly those people must not exist. Spoilers! Spoilers! We will get to Monster Care Squad before the end of the episode. If you as the audience cannot tell, it is Helen's favorite. So today, we're going to be talking about some of these games that don't get as much spotlight as others, that don't get talked about as much on the interwebs and in our local game groups. We won't talk about any games we've already reviewed, but if there's interest, we might do an in-depth episode on some of these later. Here's an important note to stress. These aren't bad games. Absolutely not. They just may not fit at our tables right now. We're all eager to play them if we get ever get the chance. If they appeal to you, then by all means, go support these creators and or your friendly local game store and have a blast. A couple of the games that we're going to talk about today are actually on my short list of favorite games in the world. It's just hard to find a group that will play them with me. So a lot of times I just look at them longingly and swoon quietly to myself. 
Spoiler alert for the audience, once we finish this episode, I'm going to lobby really hard to let me run an actual play of Monster Care Squad. Anyway, we'll get there. You're not going to have to lobby all that hard. There we go. Or at all. (laughs) (laughs) Time for my spoiler. My colleagues made the mistake of letting me write most of this one. Most of the games on here are ones that I want to play. And if you're careful, you can probably tell that I've been playing a lot of Crusader Kings recently. (laughs) (laughs) So since we're going through several games, our format is going to be a little different for this episode. We're hitting the high points of the setting and mechanics, and we're going to talk about what the game intends to do and why it might be fun to play, even if for only a one shot. So let's get started. All right. The first one, the sword, the crown, and the unspeakable power. I'm just putting that out there. If I ever make a punk rock band, I'm stealing this name. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, and you get to call your fans scuffers. Yeah, that's just great. That's really great. And also, I'm going to totally wear a sword, and somebody else is going to wear a crown. And then our drummer is just going to have a lot of speakers behind them. No, no. Whoever the third person is, they have all the pyrotechnics. Yeah, well, and they're always just, you never see their face. They're always dressed in, like, just flowing black robes that obscure their identity completely. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. So anyways, the sword, the crown, and the unspeakable power, published by Wheeltree Press. So what is this game about? This game is a high-politics, high-drama, medieval fantasy game with dark magical powers. Think uh, Game of Thrones. So let's talk about the setting highlights. There isn't one. It is entirely up to your table to make the world you want to play in. The only thing that has to be true is that magic exists in this world, and it is a conscious, malevolent thing. This game explicitly stresses that the entire table should sit down and come up with the creation myth of the world. The kind of cultures the characters will be from, and all the nature of the dark magic that permeates the land. You'll also have to figure out how the classes fit into your setting, you can break them into martial, social, magical, where, which is where the title comes from. The martial classes are a physical powerhouse, a military leader, and an assassin. The social classes are a noble, a bard, and a torturer. One of these things does not seem like the other. The magical classes are a wizard, a witch, and the prophet of the magical source itself. So, huh. Ryan... Yeah. Does the game tell you how you should make this creation myth? Does it give you like yes. guidelines? It has a whole chapter about making the game your own. And they talk about, you know, how do you want to design your culture? How you should make your creation myth? Then you should decide, is that the actual creation myth that everyone knows? Or does their religion say something completely different? There is an entire chapter about making the game for your table. Um, and very specifically... Do you not want to play like a a European medieval culture? Great. Um, The only thing that that really needs to be in it, that that magic has to be there. And in some form, the different classes have to exist in the world you're you're making. But yes. Sounds awesome. Let's move on to the mechanics highlights. First off, this is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, which means it's based on the game Apocalypse World. If you listened to our Let's Play of Brindlewood Bay, that is another Powered by the Apocalypse games. There are a bunch of them, and it's a pretty easy system to learn. Yeah, it is very simple. Yeah, it's a very simple system. 
It has a list of pretty generic actions called moves. Most of the things that you want to do in the game will fit within one of these moves. When you do something... For example, an investigate move. Right, an investigate move or a fighting move or doing something like sneaking up on someone, something risky like that, or trying to convince someone of something. Very generic. And when you do something in the narrative that falls within one of them, one of these moves, and the outcome is uncertain, you roll 2d6 and you add an attribute. If you get a 7 through 9, you get a partial success. A 10 up is a full success. Then you get to pick off a list of outcomes based on how well you did. So an example, you engage in combat, which is a default move for a fight. Regardless of how well you roll, you and your opponent are going to compare your armor and weapons to see how much damage you do to each other. If you get a partial success, you choose to modify that exchange. Maybe you do a little more damage or you reduce theirs. If you roll exceptionally well, then you also get a secondary goal. Maybe someone you wanted to protect got away, you grab a purse of money, whatever makes sense. Each class also has a set of moves they can pick from that will help them fulfill their role. For example, the witch class has a move to magically disguise themselves as someone else, one to curse people, one to have poison blood, and one to enact binding contracts. You know, witchy stuff. But none of it, I must say, is prehensile eyebrows and the ability to smell children, which was my favorite witchy stuff. Alright, so they don't have that specifically. You need to look for First Dead Pathfinder for that. I mean, couldn't that be a binding contract? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying if I were playing this and I was the witch, I would be obnoxious because I would have poison blood. All, like every time I'd be like, ah, poison blood move, poison blood move. Am I doing poison blood yet? Well, I guess you could smell children. You could harness the supernatural. That would let you smell children. But yeah. All right. One of the nice things about Powered by the Apocalypse is that the GM never rolls. Hallelujah. Players roll to react to things. And because a lot of these roles end up introducing or changing elements in the story as they happen, the GM is basically being an improv coach. The GM is also playing to find out how things will go. They might have some ideas for things that they want to happen, but those dramatically shift when a character rolls well. This is not your GM sits down and creates a grand adventure before we ever start sort of systems. It's the GM comes up with vaguely what they want to do and then holds on to the roller coaster and hopes they don't lose their mind. Importantly, uh, you also make a network of NPCs. <laughs> yes. And then yes. watch the players just ruin everything. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right. So why won't they play with me? Uh, Game of Thrones just isn't some people's jam. Especially later seasons. Not everybody wants to plot and scheme, particularly if it might be against another player. Also, some people get attached to their characters, and this is not the game for that. This is a grim game where characters die pretty easily, and sometimes you just don't want that. Sometimes you want to have your character and you want to tell a big, long story with them, and that's fair. Meanwhile... Let's talk about a game where if a character is supposedly dead, they're definitely not dead and everything is worse for everyone. Amber, the diceless role-playing game. Yes! <laughs> Fireworks! So this game was designed by Eric Wujicek, but is currently out of print. This game is about the Chronicles of Amber by Roger Zelazny. The system was built around that setting. So... What's the Chronicles of Amber about, guys? What? 
<laughs> okay, so the, the pseudo-concise way that I tell this when I'm trying to get people to read these books is there are two places that are real. One is the source of all order. The other is the source of all chaos. And everything in between is a reflection of these two places. You play somebody who is from either the place of order or the place of chaos who affects existence in dramatic ways. Also sprinkle a whole bunch of 80s psychedelics on top. Oh, yeah, and magic and shape-shifting and... Bell-bottoms. Bell-bottoms and talking bananas. Like, whatever you want. It's... Mullets. So many mullets. All right, Ben. Here we Ex- are, born to be the geeks. No, you know, no, Ryan, go. Uh, exactly um, how much of the princes of the, of the universe, universe by Queen can we play without being sued? That much. That is okay, how much good. we can play. Good. Fantastic. So, Jared actually gave a pretty good description based on a series of books by Roger Zelazny. There's a pole of order, a pole of chaos. In the middle, there's the tree Yggdrasil. Beyond the pole of chaos lies the abyss, which was there before everything and will be there after everything. <laughs> Between these two poles, the great city of Amber at the tip of the pole of order and the courts of chaos at the opposite end of the multiverse, every reality beyond imagining exists as a fractal reflection influenced more strongly depending on which side of Yig it exists on. These realities comprise shadow. For frame of reference, Earth exists in this setting, and they don't tell us exactly where it is, but it's kind of near the center point, but slightly closer to Amber, which is the side of order. In shadow, uh, everything is possible, everything exists, and your character can go, do, and take whatever they want. So the only questions are how, who will try to stop them, and what price are they willing to pay? This all sounds like gobbledygook. It's okay. There's like, what, eight books in the series? Ten. There are ten books in the series. There are ten, but you shouldn't read all of them. <laughs> in uh, my personal opinion. So my favorite character in the book series, just to explain to you how this goes, he is the master of war. He is the greatest general. And the reason he is the greatest general is because he has just walked from shadow to shadow and fought in every type of war, on every type of planet. He has seen everything. He has done everything. He has fought 10,000 battles and then 10,000 more. And like, there's just no military trick that he hasn't seen. There is nothing you can come up with that someone hasn't already tried to murder him with. Cool. So, setting highlights. The setting is built on the premise that your characters, whether they are from Amber or the Courts, are essentially demigods who are both more fundamentally real than the average shadow dweller and can learn any number of the cosmic powers necessary to walk the planes of the multiverse. The tension comes from the political setting, which is summarized playably in the core book, Mm-ish, but easiest to understand if you have read at least the first four or five books in Zelazny's Chronicles. You gotta do the reading. Gotta respect the lore. I mean, you don't really have to respect the lore. We've read the books. We don't respect the lore. No. Anyway, these books are fun, but they're extremely 70s, and the casual misogyny can't all be explained away by the unreliable narrator of the main character. Yeah, there's definitely, if you're going to read the books, you're definitely going to have to, like, groan to yourself and move on a few times. Now, I, I will say, 
the first book is the worst for the the 70s vibe and it's only in like the first half so if you can make it through that far through the book most of the 70s-ness washes off or you just get cultured to it the way you stop noticing a bad smell eventually yeah you, you just go 70s blind um all right so you're not alone in the great pool of order Castle Amber and the kingdoms it controls were built by the ancient wizard Dworkin, who inscribed the pattern, one of those cosmic powers used to traverse shadow, but only available to members of Dworkin's direct bloodline. The game assumes that you're playing a member of this bloodline, so we're going to explain from that perspective. It's not required, there are other options, but this is the default. If you go with the game's assumption that you're playing a member of Dworkin's bloodline, your character will either be one of his great-grandchildren or farther down the line. The first or second generation after Dworkin, made up of King Oberon and his sundry children, all got here before you, and every single one of them is a scheming bastard who hates his family. But they also can't stay away from each other because they are their only peers in an infinite multiverse. If you're familiar with the way elders relate to each other in Vampire the Masquerade, it's very much the same vibe. Also, hey, Jared, hey Jared, why why couldn't the uh, wizard answer the door? Why not, Ben? Because he is working. God bloody hell. <laughs> nice for leaving that one in. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys are starting to get a little bit of a look into what I, as the GM, have to deal with. These are my gosh darn gaming group. Also, okay. working as the the ancient wizard who established castle amber you know it's you know it's on the side of a man somewhere like yeah oh oh okay. yeah he in fact all all of the wizards airbrushed on sides of vans are just shadows of dworkin they're his reflections of the multiverse oh i love that the he is the only wizard on any van in all of the multiverse existence yeah yeah Oh, also, if you've seen so uh, really weird stuff, the Fire and Ice movie, that's a very good uh, analog for this. Anyways, <clears throat> it's extremely common for members of House Amber to leave their wayward offspring, of which there are uncountable dozens, on comfortable shadows somewhere in the multiverse, living their lives totally oblivious to their own heritage. Until or unless their cosmic parent comes to collect them one day. Or occasionally their cosmic uncle or aunt who yeah. wants to cause some trouble. Guardian. Cosmic guardian. Oh, and you don't get to pick your parent. The book is real clear on this point. No one gets to choose their family. And from there, your characters form the youngest generation of Amberites who are expected to scheme, murder, take power, combat threats to the multiverse, annoy each other profusely, create threats to the multiverse, be manipulated by their elders, attempt to manipulate their elders, and fail. Here we are. Let's move on to mechanical highlights. Diceless doesn't mean there aren't mechanics. What it means is, outside of your four stats, there are only four stats, your GM has an extraordinary amount of power to interpret how abilities in the book work and how they interact. Sadly, some of this power is pure judgment call about wordings that are poorly edited and could legitimately be read multiple ways, uh, each of which changes the effectiveness of the ability dramatically. I want to be clear. I honestly don't think that some of these are accidents. I don't think that this is poorly edited. Like, oops, 
this could potentially be interpreted multiple ways. I think they make it vague and easily easy to twist on purpose because that's fucking Amber. So as someone who has taken as a pet product to rewrite the Amber RPG, that's definitely some of it. It still needs a line editor. Yeah, some of it is also just uh, shape-shifting. Cough, cough. Some of it is also just that it's advanced shape-shifting. My favorite power and the only power that I play, because why would I take any other power, is either the best or the most useless ability in the game, depending on the mood that you are in when you read it or what your game master says. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I will never take any other power. Much like our first game, there's an expectation of secrets and perhaps some betrayal. Also, you need at least five players for the auction to work right. No, 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 no. Before we even get to the auction, some betrayal. No, the entire game is betrayal. It is betrayal <laughs> o'clock in Betrayalburg. Like... <laughs> Betrayalburg. I have never in a game of Amber lied about any of the murders or backstabbing that my character has done. <laughs> <laughs> so, certainly... You can play it that way. You don't have to, but that is what the game expects. Yeah, I, I don't think I have ever not lied in a game of Amber about all of the murders and backstabbings my character has committed. Um, okay, so auction. Explain this auction word. Oh, oh yeah. Did you, just, did you just think you got to pick your four stats? Like this was D&D or something? No. no. Oh, don't be silly. The four stats are strength, warfare, which is sort of a combination of your decks and your tactical ability, endurance, and psyche, which is your mental force, willpower, mental resistance, etc. You start with 100 points as your base. Then all the players enter a silent bid for each attribute. The GM takes the role of auctioneer, announces the highest silent bid, and proceeds from there. You might be thinking, boy, howdy, 100 points sure sounds like a lot. Here's the thing. The point values create a static ranking framework. These aren't dice because the person who comes in first in the auction in strength is the best in strength. The person who comes in first in psyche is the best in psyche, and it's just that. That means that if character A came in fifth in the warfare auction, and they try to lead a surprise ambush against character B, who came in first in the warfare auction... Womp womp. They're going to find themselves on the verge of a total crushing victory, just in time to discover that every single one of their personal advisors is a double agent for their enemy, and they have walked directly into their own kill box. But if character A was also the first in strength, and character B was the third in strength, if character A gets character B in a grapple, character B will be snapped in half. Or maybe character A teams up with character C was second in warfare and first in psyche and that can really change the game if you remove the random element of dice what's left is creating opportunities that play to your strengths and leave your opponent at a disadvantage this is the heart of the political sphere in the game i just want to be clear just because you're not first in strength doesn't mean you can't win a fist fight against the person who is first in strength you've just got to twist it first you've got to poison them first or right. get them drunk or the attributes are, if everything else is equal, the person who is higher wins. If other things are not equal, 
uh, that can change things. But that is all entirely up to the GM to arbitrate. Well, how effective was that poison? He hasn't slept for 24 days. What does that do? You have a friend who's not very good, but he's still there as a distraction. What is this doing to their attribute? So those 100 points go quick if multiple people have decided they want to be first in a particular trait. And remember, you buy up other abilities after the auction, and they aren't cheap. The standard power called pattern, which is kind of a default, costs 50 points. So what do you do if you blow your budget? Well, you can always spend more points. There's no limit to the number of points you can spend, but the deficit over 100 becomes bad stuff, which serves essentially as the game's tiebreaker. Ditto with any points left over that you didn't spend at the auction or buying abilities, they become good stuff. Characters who have good stuff lead charmed lives of pleasant coincidences and lucky breaks, whereas characters who have bad stuff find themselves standing in front of burning buildings with a spent match saying, I can explain this, I swear, a whole lot. Can I tell a super quick story about an Amber game that I was in? You know you can. 20 seconds. I was in a group of people who, for whatever reason, all wanted to be sorcerers and all wanted to have Psyche as their first. And so it was a group of six people I was number one in the other three categories and six in Psyche, and it was effing hilarious. Because of the nature of the auction, it is really a randomizer. You may come in with a budget and knowing exactly how much you're going to spend on each attribute, but depending on how everyone else did their characters, you may end up being the first in something you were not prepared to be the first in, or really behind in something you thought you were going to be really good at. The answer is you put 50 points into each of the different attributes and then you buy advanced shape-shifting and then you go home. <laughs> I don't know that that's the answer. Okay, so why won't people play Why won't they play with me? Because I do that at the auction. Many games ha- with an external <laughs> source material have, have, so like Supernatural, Doctor Who, Firefly, Dresden, and that external source material being baked in it can be helpful, but not necessary to be familiar with whatever media it comes from. But those are not political games. The worlds that they are set in are full of alternate stories, supporting characters. You can play around anywhere in Supernatural and use elements of things that come from, I mean, it's, it's a hunter game, right? You don't have to be anywhere near Sam and Dean in order to play in that world. Not so here. Amber's the game was built around a political intrigue setting. The NPCs and features in the game are embedded into the mechanics and make the most sense in that context. After all, the mechanics were written for the setting. If you strip the setting elements from the game to generify it, you're no longer playing Amber. You're playing a diceless RPG system set in an infinite multiverse where demigod beings of cosmic power fight for control of the fractal worlds that accordion out between the poles of order and chaos. So it's a Marvel RPG. If that's what you're looking for, we recommend checking out Lords of Gossamer and Shadow from Wright Publishing to like figure out your own homebrew. It uses the Amber Diceless RPG mechanics with, you know, the serial numbers scratched off so you're not committing any crimes and recreates a generified self-contained version of the setting that's all in the core book with like out the 70s-ness and casual misogyny. Or you can try Lords of Olympus from 
Presis Intermedio. Presis? Which reskins them as Greek gods and titans. So other than that, I think this is very much a game where if you haven't got every player in the GM on the same page about the meta genre, you're going to struggle. Players can and should run wild around the setting with their own emergent narratives and plots, but if the GM doesn't want to be running seven different games between three different character cliques, they really need to present a clear and concise vision up front about how they want to approach the game. Because you can find yourself running seven different games in multiple different subgenres between shifting character alliances pretty quick. Okay, here's a slightly longer example of how that happens. One of the characters in your Yeah, one of the characters in your group is from a shadow where everything is black and white, with light saxophone music drifting in from nowhere, and they make pithy one-liners about hairy cases and dames. Another is a reskin of Master Chief from Halo. A third is a computer science post-grad working on a PhD from Virginia Tech. They all find themselves in the back of a 1950s Corvette driven by a man who has David Bowie's aesthetics but none of his style, who calls himself random and says he's their uncle. They watch the road beneath them change from asphalt to dirt to marble to cobble to bone while the world on either side alternates between towns, cities, a pitch battle between giant crab people and a primeval forest. Finally... Looming up in the distance, cellos playing loudly. They see the platonic ideal of a Euro fantasy castle, parapets and towers sweeping against a perfect blue sky. And they understand in their heart of hearts that they have spent their whole lives until now in a dream, walking amongst pale shadows. And nothing in all of the multiverse will ever be as solid and true and real to them again as Castle Amber, which they are now seeing for the first time. More than any other game, knowing how and why these characters are together and what you're all doing here is everybody's responsibility from session zero forward. I'm not throwing stones here. This was a fan game that was tossed together. The editing does need a lot of work. Uh, your GM is going to have to read through the book and make a lot of judgment calls about exactly what power can do what and how long that takes. But if you like the niche, the weird, and the infinitely possible with a strong side helping of charmingly busted, ridiculous mechanics, then this game is for you. Also, if you want to stab stab your friends in the back and give your GM a heart attack. I will admit I hit the strong abort button on this game, but go on. I mean, I will say this is one of my favorite games I ever played. I absolutely love it. I have played it with two groups of people. One was the right group, and it's one of the most fun gaming times I've ever had and the other was the wrong group and it was an absolute bloody disaster that ruined friendships. This is a game that requires a talented, experienced, flexible GM or you simply cannot play it. This game puts a ton of stress on your GM. I remember one of the first games I played with Ryan was him and when he was finally convinced me that I should try this game uh, when we were in college. He immediately cheered and wandered off back to his car, having successfully gotten me to say, yes, I'll play him. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I re, like to all the GMs out there, whatever amount of time you usually spend prepping for a session, if you are leading an Amber Diceless game, expect to spend two or three times that amount. Not doing the things you think you need to prep for either. <laughs> no, you'll figure it out quickly. But there's just like, 
you really are running seven mini games and everyone has their own goals and they're stabbing each other in the back and you have to do private sessions. We didn't even touch on the fact that they don't have their sheets. You have their sheets and they don't really know what's on them. All right, fine, fine. One thing, one final thing we're going to add into this part and then we're going to move on. We're moving on after this. But a part of the game I love, after you make your character sheet at character creation, you never know what's on it again. Because every time you get experience, the GM just tells you, you have some experience. Tell me what you want to buy. And if you're willing to go into bad stuff to buy it. And that's it. I mean, if it's something physical, you know, you'll know like, oh, I got that magic sword. So I guess I spent those points on that that far down my list. I wonder if it went up in an attribute. You won't know until you run into someone else. Unless they also bought up an attribute. It's a surprise. <laughs> it leads to a lot of like, I think I'm the first in strength and I have built my strategy again about that. And then you run into somebody and you're like, I'm not first in strength anymore. Oh no. Right? Like, okay. Also, the like, answer is always to go into bad stuff. Carry on. Next game we're going to talk about is Promethean the Created. I swear we won't spend as much time on this as we did on Amber. This game is created by Onyx Path. What is this game about? Promethean is a part of the Chronicles of Darkness world, like that game line with werewolf and vampire and all of that jazz. In this game, you play the created. These are creatures made from a non-living material and brought to life. And some examples of the created that inspired this game are Frankenstein's monsters and the golem from Jewish myth. All right, so let's get to some setting highlights. Like all Chronicles of Darkness games, Promethean is set in what is essentially our modern day world. This is an urban fantasy game. Uh, it's our world. Uh, it monsters prowl the night. Creatures of myth and legend were all real, frankly, relatively common. This is a world where humanity is very far from the top of the food chain. Uh, but there are enough people out there. Most of the supernatural remains circumspect. Promethean specifically is the story of those who were never meant to exist but were brought to life through extreme measures. Think Frankenstein using the storm to raise his monster. The created were given life, but not given a soul. They were never meant to be. Most of them do their absolute best to try and make the world a better place. Though there are a few selfish or violent Prometheans, in general, the Prometheans are trying to prove to themselves and to all who know them that they deserve life, that they will leave the world a better place than they found it. One of the things that I think is super cool about the Prometheans is that no matter how much good the Prometheans do, no matter how many lives they improve with their actions, they simply put, do not belong. They should not exist. This is partially a setting highlight and partially a mechanics one, but the world revolts in their presence. People feel uncomfortable around Prometheums, don't like them, even though they don't know why they don't like them. Crops fail when they're around. Technology breaks. Rot and disease become more common when they're around. People become more edgy, violent, prone to snap reactions. The more Prometheans that are gathered in one place, the faster and more dramatically this effect occurs. For this reason, Prometheans tend to live alone or in small isolated groups you protect the town and its people but you don't live there because your mere presence would sour the city you live in the woods where the people you protect will never even know that you were there if you want to play a game full of ennui and yes. characters that are trying to figure out what it means to be human uh, and constantly being defeated by a reality that hates them and wishes yes. to ex expel them from being uh, this game is for you. It's for me. If you have any interest in having discussions about what it means to be good or evil, 
then congratulations. Good. You have found your dad's. I'm the man with the gun. God. All right. Dare ruin my ennui. Um, well, now I got to play Charles Bronson, the Promethean. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is that is not Charles Bronson. I know it's not Charles Bronson, but I'm still gonna play Charles Bronson. Just, All right, <laughs> Brian, you're up. Sorry. Uh, all right, mechanical highlights. The core gameplay is the same as all the Chronicles of Darkness games. It's a very simple D10 system that is easy to learn, but still allows a fair amount of customization and flexibility. Where this game sets itself apart from the other splats, the other groups, is in how well the flavor of the Prometheans match their mechanics. For example, one of my favorite, each lineage, each type of Promethean, has a different way that they can heal supernaturally fast. Expose a creature from... Frankenstein's lineage to lightning or something similar to it, for example, like hooking it up to a car battery, and it will heal them incredibly fast. Bury a golem up to their neck in mud, and they absorb what they need healing very quickly. It's super cool. I mean, that's part of why the uh, our new uh, hunt, our hunter's kit includes a car battery when our Promethean friend comes along. Yes. Yes, it is. The breadth and creativity of these lineages is also really awesome. You have these classical archetypes, like already mentioned, but you also have muses, beings of incredible beauty, intended to inspire and and lead others to create. There are resurrected replacements, creatures made to be someone the creator lost. They successfully made life, and in some ways it may remember the lost person that they were trying to bring back. But the created is ultimately someone entirely new. Then there are the Zika, creatures brought to nearly uncontrollable life by the reality-twisting hellishness of nuclear fire. And my nuclear personal favorites... Fire. Yeah, that's appropriate. My personal favorites, the Matchless. These last two, the Zika and the Matchless, are the only two that are created by accident. The Zika are made spontane- spontaneously from destruction, and the Matchless are made by moments of pure, intense emotion. Any emotion. We're not talking small things. We're talking like the fall of the Berlin Wall, the peaceful transition of power through protest, bunch of lives being saved by a single organ donor, the spontaneous group rage at police brutality. All of these could create a matchless. P.S. They're my favorite. So why won't they play with me? The problems facing this game are smaller and simpler than a lot of those we list in this episode, but it's still enough to make it hard to find a game. There are two major problems. The first is that having a whole party of Prometheans makes things fall apart around you quickly. It feels like the game is punishing you for playing it sometimes. In second edition, they've toned that down a little bit. A little bit. As long as you play different types of Prometheans, it doesn't stack. But that does mean you get pigeonholed into playing different types of Prometheans. Well, and it still stacks once you really push your powers, but yeah. yeah. Uh, it feels like they made Promethean to be a single character in a tapestry game. And when we're saying tapestry game, what we mean is particularly in games like Onyx Paths Chronicles of Darkness, where there are multiple different character type, like werewolf, vampire, changeling, mage, geist, Promethean, etc. A tapestry game is the colloquial lingo for having a game made about made up of each of those different types also called a zoo game or a soup game 
The second difficulty in finding a playgroup for Promethean is the tone. Fundamentally, it's a game of loneliness and yearning for a resolution that will never come. It's based around the Sisyphean effort of making the world a better place, even though you do not, cannot, and will not ever belong. It is some emo shit. And it's hard to find people who want to play broken-hearted, pathetic, sad, heroic monsters who live in the woods. I know. I've tried. I've tried a lot. Uh, I have been unsuccessful. Y'all, I don't even want to play World of the Apocalypse anymore because, <laughs> you know, I don't, I, no, no, just no. All right, so our next game, Houses of the Blooded, published by John Wick Presents. So what is this game about? This game is a, another domain entry game where you explore, conspire, and practice foul magics. You know, I think maybe the issue isn't so much that nobody wants to play these games. I think it's just we don't know those people. I don't want to play those games. <laughs> <laughs> Most importantly, Houses of Blooded is about drama. Straight up drama. Hire assassins to kill your brother, then intervene to kill them so you can rescue his wife and marry her. Drama. Shakespearean shit. Lion King 2. Wow, we went deep into the cut on that one. Okay, <laughs> setting highlights, folks. We went straight to Lion King 2. We did not stop at Mufasa. We kept right on going. Yeah, Lion King 2, the one where he is raised to go and, and rescue the so he can kill Sim. I'm go on. Setting highlights. Once upon a time, there were powerful sorcerer kings, dun dun dun, whose civilization ruled vast stretches of the world. Their magic was powerful but demanding. To ease these costs, the sorcerers created a slave race called the Ven, whose blood contained magic with it. I wonder how this ends. Between their incessant treachery and rituals, they spilled out countless lives, and then one day, the Ven rose up killed their makers, and forbade the practice of this sorcery. They immediately set about stabbing their allies in the back, overreaching to reclaim the Sorcerer King's power, and practicing those same forbidden sorceries. And you, brave traveler, play one such Ven. So the book goes into a ton of detail on Ven culture. They tell you how they dress, how they eat, what kind of art they like, this is how they give you a setting. The details of the locations aren't as important as the people the setting is really about. Vin culture, much like the Vin themselves, is vibrant and flawed. In fact, revenge is considered a virtue in Vin culture. Which I get, I am from the South. In fact, revenge is such a big deal, it gets capitalized in the book. Revenge. Revenge. But that's great fodder to create high romance stories of betrayal, revenge, passion, forbidden magic, blah, 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 tragedy, you know, the whole Shakespearean thing, but with more magic. More so than the mechanics, the setting is hardwired to create stories. To kind of help you get into the right mindset for this kind of political intrigue and scheming, the example they give is that opera is considered the highest art among the Ven, because it combines all of the other lesser arts. So, paraphrasing Megamind, the difference between a villain and a supervillain is presentation. 
I cannot believe you just went from opera to Megamind in one sentence. I don't know. And you know if how I... I got there, and the way I got there was Houses of the Blooded. What is Megamind but an opera, Jared? Explode! <laughs> also, Jared, We're gonna have I to have this. a screenplay I want to present that I need you to help me work on. Just complete. Oh my god! Uh, for those of you, our listeners who do not know, I one of my first jobs was I worked in opera for a while. Oof. Okay, <laughs> mechanics highlights. So this game is very streamlined. You have attributes called virtues here that you roll when an action falls under one of them. It's all d6s. Uh, then you can pull dice from other places. So if you've played any fate games, uh, a lot of the Houses of the Blooded is cribbed from them. Uh, your character has aspects. There's your short descriptions that kind of tell the table about them, like Master Swordsman, Family Scapegoat. You can spend style points to invoke those aspects, and that will help you roll. Or the GM can give you style points to invoke them in a negative fashion. Well, how do you get style points? By having style. By being dramatic and rash and passionate, doing things that set up tragic, romantic, high drama stories. Seriously, if I were to play this game, I would spend my whole time trying to do to set up and fulfill the B plots from Shakespeare's lesser known works and see how much of it I could get away with before my party called me out on it. That is how I would play this game. Uh, when you well, aren't rolling dice. Well, since if you played this game, it would be me running it. I would probably catch on pretty fast since you just told me that. That's fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. When you roll, you aren't rolling to decide if you succeed or not. You are rolling to determine who gets to narrate what happens. You are the GM. So you, audience, may be wondering. You're probably not, but you might be, hypothetically. Why would you want to make your character fail or the GM to make you succeed? Because the goal is to tell the best story. The GM might have you succeed, but induce an unintended consequence. So there is sorcery in the game that is widely practiced in the Vin culture. It's also one of their greatest taboos, though, so it's widely practiced secretly, which, of course, makes it cooler. If you get caught performing magic, it will be a massive scandal with an equally dramatic trial ending in a suitably thematic punishment. Your house will be disgraced and the gossip will get increasingly outlandish and speculative for years so no like actual real downside then but it'll be mighty inconvenient most of the sorcery that exists is relegated to rituals you do in downtime all of it is fairy tale magic animating corpses to serve you spying on someone with a magic mirror cursing someone to always hurt the ones they love those kinds of things all right finally why won't they play with me Boy, howdy, this is a niche game. A domain-focused intrigue game about hot-blooded secret sorcerers in an alien culture geared toward generating drama. It is entirely my jam, but that's probably too specific for most people. Okay, I would play this one. Also, Houses of the Blooded expects a lot of story investment from the players. Even to the point that making roles about knowing things lets players introduce new facts into the world. The one time we tried to play, we ran into a problem where no one was good enough at the perception skill to reliably do it. And the difficulty here is because since that's kind of the plot generator, 
and the storyteller was expecting that any of us would be able to generate some plot. Like he had a general framework of what was going on, but we would just walk into a room, fail our perception, and he would go, okay, I, I guess you find some things. This is not Jared, by the way. I guess you find these things. And it kind of became just like any other game because we really weren't holding up our part of the expectation that houses the blood it has. The preface of the game talks a lot about how it was designed to intentionally challenge and invert the balance of power between like storyteller and players by putting most of the control over the plot development in the hands of the players. If that's what you're looking for, give this one a read. And if nothing else, it's got a really great aesthetic. And I would say that there's just a lot of good storytelling and narrative interest things in the Venn culture chapter. Yeah, if nothing else, this is a fun game to read. Remember how when we were talking about Amber, three of us were super excited about it, and Ben was like, I don't want to play this game. Well, for here, for Houses of the Blooded, the other three members of our team are very excited about it. And to me, it sounds like Game of Thrones with a fedora on. And oh, no, I have no I... interest. I, I don't have any interest in playing this game. What I want to play is I want to play Spire because Spire has a lot of the similar kind of cultural and weird fantasy elements, but is fun. <laughs> Crushed. Uh, Jesus. That's yeah. just, wow. I mean. Cold-blooded. Uh, also, oh the second you second you tell me you're ready to run Spire, I've got my character sheet ready to be sent to you. So you just let yeah, me Yeah, I, I know. At this point, we're in a battle of wills as to who's going to break and run it first. Um, Ryan, next game. All right, next game. The next game is 7th C, 2nd Edition. It's published by Chaosium. Uh, this game is another game by John Wick. I've always said John Wick is one half of a really good RPG development team that never met his other half. That's not to be an insult. I like the stuff he does. I Sounds like an insult. Uh, so what is this game about? Dramatic swashbuckling adventure in black powder fantasy. So think Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, Man in the Iron Mask, Princess Bride, Pirates of the Caribbean. Errol Flynn. That sort of thing. So, setting highlights. Seven C is black powder fantasy set on an alternate Earth that has a lot of very rough cultural analogs to ours. There isn't Britain, there's Avalon. They don't have Italian city-states, they have Vodace. They don't have Germany, they have Isen. It is set in the later half of the 17th century, and the default setting is Thea, the Europe analog, a... A lot of big historical events and people are compressed into the time period. The French? You mean Montaigne? Excuse me. The Montaigne Revolution is right around the corner. The major church of the continent just split after a massive war that left Isen devastated. Civil war is nearing after the Tsar of Usura unexpectedly passed away. So stuff is going down. Magic exists. The church isn't super happy about that. Each country has its own unique flavor of magic. There are also swordsman schools that teach devastatingly powerful fighting styles. Uh, in case you haven't picked up on this, this is another high drama setting. We might have a type. I'm just saying. 
We definitely didn't do theater in high school. No, no not at no. all. None of us. Absolutely none of us. None of us are professionally employed in the, th- the theater life either. Nope, definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely uh, not all right, me. so mechanical highlights. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this game is played entirely with D10s. You have attributes and skills, make pools of the appropriate combinations for whatever action you're trying to do, and then you roll them, and you make groups of dice that total 10 or higher. These groups are called raises. You spend these raises to meet the difficulty of the action you are doing, to negate consequences, or to improve results. So the different schools of magic are very different from each other. One is cannibal witchcraft, my jam. Oh, One yeah. lets you rip holes in reality to teleport through them, like my leaving, weeping, screaming holes in reality. My job. Uh, One is trying to trick a demon into making cursed bargains. Lots of options. You work with the GM to figure out in-game progress for the things you want to train. So if you wanted to be a duelist and that costs five points, you would write out five things you do that help you learn that martial style. Personally, I like the world building that can result from you needing to figure out who can teach you what. This game does actually have some fun mechanics for the GM too. There are rules for villain schemes and ways to stat out villains so that the players need to undermine their control and slowly whittle them down to being manageable in person. If you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. Like all of the media that is inspiration for this game has the mustache twirling baddie uh, 7c first edition had the iconic sentence in one of its source materials you can't spell villain without villanova who is an npc who is a villain that they presented in the game the villains are very much a part of this game if nothing else you can read it for how they do those writes up write-ups in the previous edition the game was solidly focused on the european cultures In the second edition, they have put out a ton of books and expanded the world considerably. So why won't people play this game with you, Ryan? Um, Working out the training path for every character is cool, but it adds a lot of stuff the GM needs to keep track of. Also, you gain experience two different ways, and that seems bad and overly complicated. The mechanics really expect the GM to improvise and add things as they go. To such an extent that some people might be uncomfortable winging that much of the game. The balance isn't the best. Duelists are simply better at combat than others, and guns might be too powerful. There are a lot of source books, and that's great, but some of those books rebalance mechanics from the core, so they're kind of necessary. That said, if you remember First Edition 7C, it's not remotely that bad. It's not like every source book has, for instance, entirely new sets of skills and knacks that are just hyper-specific versions of skills that already existed, like having to take swinging as opposed to athletics. Why? I know it's going to come up, but why? I will also say, to give the game credit, it has a whole section where they sit down and go, look, this is what this game is about. You're playing heroes. You need to be heroic. Do these things. These are villains. They are the bad guy. If you're not prepared to swing on a chandelier across a burning ballroom to crash out a stained glass window, fall over the edge of the cliff and into the sea for your waiting pirate ship to spirit you away, you're playing the wrong game. Oh, man. That's pretty sweet. On to only war.
published by Cubicle 7 Entertainment. The complete opposite of 7C. (laughs) What is this game about? Uh, It's a Warhammer 40k game. There is only war. Yep, that is that is the name. Thank you for name dropping. Unlike many other 40k games that focus on genetically altered cybernetic super soldiers, this game focuses on the Imperial Guard. The army made up of normal people sent to fight literal embodiments of their worst nightmares. So uh, don't get too attached to your character. So we talked in a previous episode about the newest 40k game. This is not that This is the one before. It has a lot of quirks and it is all of the stuff we said about the setting of 40K when reviewing the newest game is true here. It is grimdark. It is over the top. Do not let Nazis in your game. You know, in fact, whenever game you play, we can just have that unspoken rule. Sure. Do not let Nazis in your game. Yeah, we've had that rule. But it's especially a problem in the 40K games. Yep. Because they try and sneak in. They don't even try and sneak in. They go through the front door and people don't always catch them. So setting highlights. There is only war. Blood for the blood god. That's heresy. It's heresy. You're an Imperial Guardsman. You're the sticky red stuff that keeps the Imperium going. If you've ever wanted to play Starship Troopers, the tabletop RPG, this is the game for you. If your characters survive more than 15 hours of in-game time, they are considered veterans. You should accrue stories and close calls at an utterly alarming rate, which is a lot of fun, but like, don't get too attached to your character. They're going to die, comma, a bunch. Okay, mechanics. Two for the price of one. You get your actual character and a buddy. Uh, the buddy does have fewer stats. Most of the classes are some sort of variation of big sentient being with Big, dumb gun. And the others are either high-variant specialists or cyborgs. You are so damn weak in this game. They, like, really nailed the power level of the fluff of you are an average conscripted soldier, not necessarily conscripted, but likely conscripted soldier fighting space monsters. It's not really conscription when everyone should volunteer to serve the Emperor with their life. It is when they shoot you in the belly if you don't. So good luck surviving a campaign as a psyker. That's going to be your character class that has an inherent psychic ability. Or, you know, using your powers as a psyker. You have to remember that this game is designed to fit on the lowest end of an overall power scale that spans multiple different games. This means that the top tier there still has to be a challenge in casting psychic powers. But you also can't have Imperial Guardsmen blasting lightning bolts out of their fingers as easily as their OP counterparts. So if you try, you're more than likely to summon a demon from the warp, and it's going to result in a TPK. So Ben, why won't they play with you? So you know how you shouldn't get too attached to your character? (laughs) Well, like an FFG... Warhammer game character generation is an absolute pain in the ass. But that's okay. You have an NPC buddy who can easily easily be replaced and who has to essentially be within five meters of their associated player character at all times. He's your battle buddy. He is, or she is. They are. They are tacitly expected to take a whole lot of final blows that your PC would otherwise take. 
this could be fun in narrative moments, but it makes combat extremely hard for the DM to manage. And while the rules are for comrades are streamlined, it is an additional body on the battlefield. So mostly they just, they just provide bonuses to their player character. But it's just another system to remember in a game full of secondary and tertiary systems. Oh, and the combat already sucks in this system. The combat is not supposed to suck in a game that is about war. That yeah. is only war. The only combat can't suck. Oh, it, it can. Because... Have you ever wanted a distance-specific game that isn't balanced? (laughs) I've got the game for you. Just try and play it with minis and not go insane. I dare you. One last thing I will say about this game, as someone who has played it and enjoyed it, it's a mess. And I would explicitly... After the first few sessions, our GM instituted a new rule, which was you must have a backup character sheet at the start of the session. (laughs) <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know about the game i'm having flashbacks to adventure conqueror king right now so i i gotta say when you initially said like you have a buddy one i i really love the idea of like the commandant getting up the megaphone all right we're gonna go in does everyone have their body and everyone like holds up their clasped hands they have with their body like it's kindergarten <laughs> Uh, and two, I mean, it is that it yeah, really I, is. I know, that. I know. And <laughs> the other thing was, I just assumed like, oh, they're your they're your secondary replacement character, right? You die, scratch off the name, write you know, private whatever on the second character sheet, switch some stuff over because now they're now a full PC, and then you keep going. So but apparently the fir- not. The first time we had oh. a character, the first time we had a character die, character creation takes so long. That when the character who died, when the player whose character died was making their new character sheet, the rest of the group played a one-page RPG one-shot while waiting for them to finish their character. They're Imperial Guardsmen! (laughs) They came from an ad world, like, 36 hours ago. They were handed an ill-fitting uniform and a gun that still had blood on it, and they were sent into the fray. What could possibly be on their sheet? Oh, so much stuff. You have okay, so you gotta remember that they need at least one copy of the infantryman's primer. They've gotta have that last gun, and there's four different types of last guns. So you better pick the the right last gun, even though they're all the same except for And all four different last guns have four different skill proficiencies. Yeah. So if you take the wrong skill proficiency, you just can't shoot the gun that you have. You don't have skill proficiencies! I, so I will say, being trained in the long last gun you're issued is perfect. That's peak 40k. That's perfect. <laughs> okay, let's let's move on to the last game. This is definitely, for Ben and I, a guilty pleasure game. We know it's not good, but we love it. Yes, 100%. And so as a reward to me for putting up with only war, we're going to talk now about Monster Care Squad, which was published by Sandy Pug Games. So, what is this game about? Is it about all creatures, great and small? Rolling Hills. An idyllic village, surrounded by patchwork fields, many different crops, sheep grazing among stands of shrubby trees. Imagine now that one of those big hills starts to tremble and shake and rises out of the ground, the whole hill, higher and higher on 
massive redwood legs with a boulder head that reaches up impossibly high into the sky. This colossal tortoise stretching its neck so high it gets harder and harder to see in the pale thinning atmosphere until it opens its jaws and bites a stratospheric cloud and pulls its head all the way back to the shell, dragging the cloud closer and closer until it casts the shadow over the little village. And then it shakes the cloud and a gentle warm rain begins to fall. And all around, children stream out of the houses, splashing in puddles, cheering at the surprise sun shower, and the vast tortoise, pleased with itself, withdraws back into its shell and sinks back onto the landscape to sleep while the children play. This is Ald Amora, where people live alongside the monsters who bring the seasons and shape the world. They are neighbors and partners. They are part of an interdependent living community. You play a monster care specialist, a veterinarian trained to help the monsters of Ald Amora with whatever ails them. And right now, what ails them is the false gold. Imagine that same colossal tortoise staggering aimlessly across the countryside, carelessly crushing homes and churning the fields. Its roar is thunder and lightning shoots up from where its feet strike the ground. Rivers of strange golden liquid stream from sores across its body and from its eyes, blinding it and spilling down its neck in a rain of terrible glittering mist. The call has gone out across the land for monster care specialists to rally together in elite teams and travel far and wide. Your mission is to comfort and cure those afflicted, whether with more common ailments or the dreaded false gold. And maybe find out more about the strange illnesses origins. I'm really glad we're talking about Monster Care Squad, but I only have one question. What is your question, Jerry? Whether or not this game belongs on this list, because every single person I have told about Monster Care Squad, their first response has been, so when are we playing this game? And I so don't know if that's- So I'll tell game. you why it's on this list. Ryan put it on this list, and I said, why is that on the list? And he said, because it's niche. And I said, but we all want to play it. Can but you hear the Alex Jones-like scream erupting <laughs> from her? Don't you dare, Benjamin. <laughs> I just... <laughs> okay, Do you want to talk about highlights. the frogs? Anyway. Highlights. Let's move on. Okay, so you remember Shadow of the Colossus? What if instead of killing the Colossus, you were trying to save them? That makes me happy. Not all of the monsters are that big, but they're all magical, intelligent, powerful, and driven into pain-fueled, dangerous rage and despair by the mysterious false gold. This is dangerous work. And Monster Care Squad does differently than other games is you are not here to kill the rampaging Sky Manta. You are here to fix its boo-boos and make it better. Hey, are you one of the people whose D&D party keeps adopting NPCs and making pets out of the dungeon critters? Maybe this is the game you should be playing instead. The world building in this game is rich and open-ended. They've specifically not given you a single known origin for the false gold, which is primarily a reason for your party to set out on the adventure. But to stir your imagination, there are a few possible suspects proposed in the book. Old Amora itself is a supercontinent with a sprawling desert in the center. Continentality! 
and every other conceivable biome and ecosystem is scattered around the edges. Time and space are not quite as fixed as they are in a more mundane world. That is to say, you are free to set your story anywhere and range far and wide to your heart's content. The whole book is a wealth of concept art and has a chapter about setting pieces. The writers have not taken as wrote the hierarchical top-down structure of society that we're used to being the default in both our world and the media. And 1,000 years of harmonious peace between peoples and between peoples and monsters, currency has been abolished, communities govern themselves with collective rule, and life is adapted to meet the needs of both the people and the land. Uh, for instance, they give the specific example of how tech level is not an effective measure to describe technology across Albumura. Technology and magic may look interchangeable in many ways. Rather than having a linear spectrum where technology equals progress and either moves towards good, more technology, or bad, less technology, think instead about how a community invests its resources and expertise to meet that community's needs. Maybe a large coastal city will have an airship route to a handful of other large coastal cities nearby to avoid the need for building new roads through a nearby forest or to avoid the need to repair roads every time there's a flood. But the small idyllic farming village mentioned above may only require a mail carrier to come by a small glider once every three days to drop off packages and letters, and otherwise they get on fine with wagons or riding some friendly kangaroo-like monster for longer trips. So this is a game that wants you to think outside of the box about not just who your character is, but how your character fits into the lives of everyone they meet. This game saw the high fantasy violence simulator grind, and they went in the opposite direction, and I am here for every single page. All right, so the mechanical highlights. Your character will have five keywords that form the base of their stats. These are force, fine, grit, acuity, and allure. You will assign a specialized form of training related to being a monster care specialist for these stats, and then a background of the fifth. For instance, your character might put phlebotomy as the training under their fine stat, but they might put astronomy under acuity. They've always been a stargazer, and they've kept up with the field outside of their monster specialist work. So you're going to get a, a starting range of plus one, plus zero, and minus one to some combination of these skills as presented in the book. The basic system uses moves, and the basic dice mechanic is 2d6 plus an appropriate skill, with a bonus if you have a background or training that helps. As we've seen before in a number of games, a 10 plus is a success, a 7 to 9 is a partial success, a 6 or below is a failure with something else happening as determined by the GM. I'll also add that there are... As opposed to a Powered by the Apocalypse game where there might be a set of, a, a small standard set of moves, this has a lot of moves. The book is full of different moves and there are different moves for different phases of play, which we'll get to in a second. In addition to flat bonuses, other benefits called aces can add dice to a roll, either a d4 or a d8, depending. That's all fairly straightforward. So what do the mechanics do that's special here? So first of all, there's no move or mechanics anywhere in the game to intentionally cause harm or kill. You're a vet. Do no harm is part of your creed. Ludo narrative. 
Sigh. Um, Woof. Um, does this mean a horse-sized porcupine lizard may not, in a pain-induced delirium, shoot spikes or breathe fire at you? It does not. But it can't help itself, and that's why you're there. That said, the specialists, your characters, will not take damage or die in Monster Care Squad. It's not going to happen. They are professionals. But pausing to not get flambéed might cause you to lose total control of the situation. Second, the broad phases of the game reflect your character's purpose confronting this monster as well. Diagnosis to assess the situation, synthesis to come up with a treatment or cure, and symbiosis to administer it to the suffering monster. And again, that horse-side porcupine lizard won't necessarily just lay down and let you give it an injection. Through the symbiosis phase, you will be wrestling with the monster for control of the situation, whether that means literally climbing up a sheer cliff to face it and corner it at its eerie, or using a move to anticipate its next move to get the edge. This is represented by the control track, each stage of which has a die type D4 through D12. Once you've gotten the edge on a monster by succeeding on a symbiosis move, you can attempt to cure one of the monster's wounds by rolling the die you're on at that stage of the track. The wounds are symptoms of the false gold and also might be seen as uncontrollable fonts of magic, either from the disease or the monster. When you cure one, the monster loses the abilities associated with that wound, which can make it easier for your team to cure the rest of what's wrong with it. So, for example, one of the wounds that they give as an example in the book is spawning boils, which is to say smaller, horrible versions of the monster come popping out of its wounds. And once you successfully cure that wound, those spawning boils go away and that effect stops. So Helen, why won't they play this with you? I don't know. It's truly, it would be mind boggling. I can't conceive of how someone could read, for instance, the flash fiction, a warning note from the local constabulary to the house shaped like a large tortoise, and not realize immediately that they should play this game. I mean, it is a bit niche. I would like to point out that as soon as Helen sent me that story that she just mentioned and told me the concept of the game, I immediately responded with name the place and the time. I will bring popcorn. I am so there. Uh, Sometimes the barrier is cost. There are a lot of books out there. There are a lot of relevant core books. There are weird dice, etc. Not so with Monster Care Squad. If you want, you can buy the book from Sandy Pug's website and their itch.io page, but they've also taken the extra step of making the entire content of the book without the art freely available on its own website for anyone to use. Huzzah! Which is a reason in and of itself to support the company financially if you can. For sure. And uh, if you just can't find anyone to play Monster Care Squad with you, fear not. The book actually has tips of how you can play this game solo, which turns it more into kind of a fluid guided storytelling or journaling experience. All right. Well, I'm Ryan, the book hoarding rules guy. I'm Ben, the perils of the warp player. I'm Helen, the magma tears storyteller. And I am Jared, the lonely game master. And together we are the starting equipment podcast. Thank you for listening to us ramble and enjoy our new outro music. Come find the fun and the magic we make with the stories told in this world we create.